Hello, everyone. You're listening to Intersections in Public Service, a podcast recorded by University of Virginia students in conjunction with the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service. We'll take a look at some of the most pressing issues facing our community, how public servants of all kinds are trying to address them, and what you can do to help. I'm your host, Ben Fisher, and today we're talking about the impacts of climate change on Virginians. With the recent bill barring Virginia from joining the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, many people are left with questions about climate change and what effects it might have on their communities. Here with me today to talk about that is Scott Doney, a University of Virginia environmental science professor who focuses on the carbon cycle and human-caused changes to it. So how are you today? Ah, doing good, doing good. All right. And your research primarily focuses on the impacts of carbon emissions, correct? Yeah. So I, my, my background is in ocean science, but also in um, what we call biogeochemistry. It's basically tracking you know, the flow of carbon and other things through the global system. And so I look at the emissions of carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels or agriculture and how it gets into the atmosphere and where, where it ends up, whether it gets taken back up by the land or it ends up being taken up by the ocean. Okay. And the emission of carbon has a lot of very disparate impacts. Is that right? So there's sort of two main effects of human emissions of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. One is that over time, carbon dioxide is building up And carbon dioxide is uh, a heat-trapping gas. Basically, the planet, you have sunlight coming in and warming the planet, and the planet, to maintain a constant climate, emits radiation back to space. Carbon dioxide actually acts to trap some of the emissions back to space. And so what happens is the planet actually heats up. And so by adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, we're leading to not only global warming, but a whole series of consequences for the climate system. The other main effect of adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere is that the carbon dioxide, for example, that ends up in the ocean and about a quarter of human emissions end up in the ocean, it actually affects the chemistry of seawater. And that can have negative impacts on a whole host of different uh, organisms that live in the sea. Okay, so maybe you could explain how carbon dioxide affects the chemistry of seawater. So carbon dioxide is a gas. So it, like other gases, it dissolves into seawater. But unlike, say, nitrogen gas or oxygen gas, carbon dioxide actually reacts with water. This is the same thing that happens in a bottle of club soda. The carbon dioxide forms a little bit of carbonic acid by reacting with the water. And that carbonic acid actually makes the water slightly more acidic. And what's important for many types of organisms, things like shellfish and corals, lots of organisms that build shells, they use minerals on seawater, in particular calcium and carbonate. So this is what you see if you look at the skeleton of a coral, or for example, if you've ever seen the the White Cliffs of Dover, that's actually calcium carbonate from small little marine plankton that built their shells long ago that fell to the seafloor. When you make the water more acidic, 
it actually makes it harder for those organisms to build their shells. So as we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, we're going to see shifts, probably further declines in corals. We're already seeing that because of warming and likely impacts on shellfish, things like uh, clams and mussels and oysters, uh, even some crustaceans. Okay. And these organisms are particularly important to ocean ecosystems, right? Corals, particularly tropical corals, which we're all pretty familiar with, they show up in National Geographic, are really vibrant, diverse ecosystems. And the coral is the foundational species. They basically frame the whole ecosystem. But there are also ecosystems that you're probably less aware of. Uh, there are cold water corals that grow along the East Coast, even up along Virginia, up into New England, where the corals are also important, but they're not living right up near the surface. They're deeper in the water and they live in cold water. And then uh, lots of other organisms, such as shellfish, are important, uh, not just because of their role in the ecosystem, but because people depend on them. Shellfish and some uh, crustaceans like lobster are some of the most valuable uh, shellfish or shellfish fisheries and fisheries in the U.S. Um, so we've been doing a lot of work, for example, on the scallop fishery, which occurs off of uh, the Mid-Atlantic and then up into New England. Okay. So you mentioned also this warming effect that carbon dioxide can have, and that actually results in another impact in addition to ocean acidity on the Earth's oceans, right? So as we're adding carbon dioxide and other heat-trapping gases, uh, these are gases like methane, but also chlorofluorocarbons, nitrous oxide, we're warming the atmosphere, but also warming the land surface and the ocean. And in fact, roughly about 90% of the excess heat from this global warming ends up in the ocean. So the surface of the ocean is warming, and large volumes of the subsurface of the ocean are warming. This has two big effects. One is it directly affects uh, organisms that live in the sea. And so one of the things we're seeing along the mid-Atlantic and up into New England is that many invertebrates, many fish, uh, the water's getting too warm towards the southern end of where they live, and they're actually, their populations are migrating towards the north. So things that used to be seen off the coast of Virginia and up into, De off of Delaware are now being seen in New England. Some of the species that were seen um, in southern New England are now only found in the Gulf of Maine. What is the impact of species migration? So species migration, um, first off, it's, it's a wholesale shift in the ecosystem. Basically, the ocean that we see now isn't what we used to see, and it's, it's not uniform, so we're disrupting the, the natural environment. But particularly for commercial species, um, it's getting harder and harder for uh, commercial fishermen to make a living. We've adapted and we've built social and economic systems that depend upon a constant natural environment. So for example, when I was first starting in ocean sciences, uh, there was a vibrant lobster fishery, commercial fishery in Southern New England. 
that has almost completely disappeared um, because of warming and also uh, spread of uh, marine diseases, uh, which is probably also linked to the, the warming. Uh, warming makes it easier for some of these infectious diseases to spread and survive through the winter. And there's been some really nice work uh, looking not just on how uh, marine life is migrating, but how fishing communities are trying to adapt, um, whether they're traveling further to try to fish uh, the same species that they've traditionally fished, or whether they've tried to switch uh, to different species, uh, warm water species that are uh, invading the region where they live, where folks live. Okay, and another impact of carbon dioxide warming the earth is that the actual level of the oceans is increasing as well, right? What are some of the ways that that occurs and what are some of the impacts of that? So particularly for coastal communities, one of the biggest impacts of climate change and rising carbon dioxide is the impact on sea level. And this comes about in two ways. First off, as the ocean warms, water actually expands. So warm water takes up more volume than cold water. Uh, the second effect is that we're melting ice that's on land. So these are glaciers uh, and then ice sheets in Greenland and in the Antarctic. So we're, the ocean's getting larger because of warming and also because we're adding more water to it. The third effect is that the changing climate is actually shifting ocean currents, and that's a big effect uh, along the mid-Atlantic and up into New England, uh, where the sea levels are rising faster than, than the global average. Um, so when you take the effect of adding ice melt, warming the water, and these changing circulations, we're seeing really rapid rises uh, basically from Cape Hatteras all the way up into New England. Okay. And when you say really rapid rises, what exactly does that mean? So the sea level rise is on the background of tides and storms. So a lot of places you're used to seeing, you know, the water goes up and it goes down, but we're seeing, um, you know, roughly tens of centimeters already of historical sea level rise. And projections suggest that that sea level rise could be uh, a meter to several meters by the end of the century, depending upon how much ice melts. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot if you don't live on the coast. But if you go down to, for example, to Norfolk and the Hampton Roads re region, they're already seeing an increase in what's called um, sunny, sunny day flooding. Basically, there's no storm. Uh, the tides are doing their regular thing, but there's been enough increase in sea level that we're already seeing inundation of coastal regions. Um, this is leading to road flooding, to flooding of businesses. And this is, gets even worse if you have a storm. So if you have a strong storm, coming onto shore, one of the things that happens is that storm actually pushes a huge amount of water. We call it storm surge. And when you add in the sea level rise, that can make the damage from those storms considerably worse. Most of the damage from these uh, big storms is not caused by wind. It's actually caused by flooding. 
obviously rising sea levels is really important to the people of Virginia because, you know, a large percentage of the Virginia population lives very near to the coast. But are there any other impacts to these carbon emissions to people in Virginia specifically that might be especially relevant here? When we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, we see large-scale warming, and that can be particularly important in shifting summer temperatures. And so one of the impacts we're seeing across large parts of the U.S., including Virginia, is that summer days are getting warmer. And this can lead to increased heat stress, uh, demands for air conditioning, and what used to be fairly rare heat waves will become more and more common. And in fact, the peak temperatures, the record temperatures are going up with time. In addition to that warming, we're seeing changes in the water cycle. So if you sort of think back to, you know, the ocean's warmer, that evaporates more water, more water gets into the atmosphere, that leads to not only more rainfall in some locations, but also more intense rainfall. So we expect to see increases in really strong storms with lots of precipitation that can lead to flooding. And one of the serious concerns that's gotten a lot of focus is whether we're gonna see a shift in the strength and, and frequency of hurricanes. Um, the data right now on the frequency of hurricanes I think is somewhat um, ambiguous. We don't really know whether they're going to, if they're going to be more hurricanes, but there's good reason to believe that the hurricanes that are going to continue to occur are going to be stronger because the ocean is warmer and the heat of the ocean is actually what drives the tropical storms. That's where they derive their energy from. So as the ocean gets warmer, you're going to get stronger storms that are going to batter uh, coastlines. Um, one of the really intriguing results that's come out in the last uh, year or two is that because of changes in climate, people are suggesting that storms may be stalling more near the coast. So not only might the st storm be stronger, but it may be hanging around the coastline longer, which would enhance damage. Okay. So these changes that are occurring in climate, oceans warming, sea levels rising, more intense storms. These are all measurable things that we can observe, but you've referred to them multiple times as being human caused. How can we be sure that it's human emissions of carbon dioxide that's causing these changes in climate? You know, we like to distinguish what we have strong observational evidence for versus, you know, theory and models. So certainly the increase in carbon dioxide and the other heat trapping gases there is uh, very strong evidence that that is caused by human behavior. And we know that based on observations, but also uh, instrumental and pre-instrumental records. So we have ice core data, for example, that goes back 800,000 years. Carbon dioxide levels have never been this high during any of that period, and we can tie the increase quite definitively to human activities. The next question is, there's of course lots of natural variability in the climate system. You know, there are warm years, there are cold years. Can we distinguish the warming that's occurred uh, quite strongly since the mid 70s to 
these human-driven causes, these heat-trapping gases, or could we attribute it to, say, variations in sunlight from the sun, volcanic eruptions? Uh, people have done some very careful studies of these natural variability causes, and they've been able to show that you know the amount of energy coming from the sun, although it varies over an 11-year cycle, has not increased. Uh, volcanic eruptions, which actually act to cool the planet, have not led to this increase. And in fact, the, the scientific consensus based on a lot of peer-reviewed literature is that the warming signal is almost entirely attributable to human activities, uh, heat trapping gases and some other things that we're doing to affect the climate system. Okay, so the first question is, you know, there's been some talk about whether or not these effects are actually reversible. So is there anything that humans can do to reverse this cycle of warming or return climates back to the way they were before? Let's start back at what the main cause is. The main cause is we're releasing a lot of these heat trapping gases to the atmosphere. So the first step is actually to slow the emissions and actually then try to um, drive those emissions down to zero. So these are things like carbon dioxide, methane, uh, chlorofluorocarbons. So I, my work primarily focuses on carbon dioxide. There, carbon dioxide comes from the energy system. So when we burn fossil fuels for transportation, for heating buildings, for generating electricity, and what we need to do is we need to shift to energy sources that don't emit carbon dioxide. So increase reliance on renewable energy from wind and solar, for example. Uh, but we also need to limit uh, further deforestation and improve agricultural practices. And for greenhouse gases like methane, um, it's coming both from fossil fuels and from agricultural practices. So the first thing to do is to limit the emissions of these greenhouse gases. Then the question becomes, the greenhouse gas levels are already relatively high. Are there things we could do to actually reduce the levels in the atmosphere? I think most of the work in this area, it's a little more speculative. We have a pretty good sense of what we need to do to reduce emissions. But to drive down concentrations in the atmosphere, we'd have to somehow strip carbon out. And so one way would be to use a biology. Biology plants are already very good at removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. What That's what they do in photosynthesis. And so there are approaches that have been suggested for either you know, planting more forests or restoring wetlands that can remove carbon from the atmosphere or more technological approaches, chemical approaches that would remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The problem with all that is you need some place to store it. You know, so we're right now, uh, from fossil fuel use alone, emitting about 10 billion tons of carbon to the atmosphere. And so if you wanted to basically reverse the process and take carbon out of the atmosphere, you're talking about removing and storing somewhere billions and billions of tons of carbon. Some of that could go into forests and soils, but 
you know, one of the problems with forests is, you know, you have to maintain that forest and forests are vulnerable to insects, wildfire, things like that. So you really want to find a way of storing it for long periods of time. Um, one of the technologies that folks at UVA are pursuing is taking that carbon and injecting it back into the earth. This is where the fossil fuel carbon came in the first place. And in fact, uh, carbon dioxide can be injected back into old oil wells, gas fields, and stored back, sequestered back into uh, rocks. And so that may be one approach. But right now, the economics suggests that in many cases, reducing emissions is the most viable path forward. And then removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere would have additional costs that we'd have to bear, but may be viable as we move forward as there's more policy action on these greenhouse gases, these heat trapping gases. Okay. And Virginia has actually taken steps recently to reduce emissions moving towards joining the Reggie program, for example. But, you know, these solutions aren't going to solve the impacts of climate change right away. So in the meantime, what can be done to help mitigate some of those effects, such as the rising coastlines and reduction in ability to fish, et cetera? There's going to be, we've already experienced a certain amount of climate change. And in fact, I think one of the one of the important messages that's come out of the science community is that we're already in a different climate than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Climate change is not something that's going to happen only in the distant future. It's happening now. And so as we're dealing with uh, reducing emissions or, or perhaps developing technologies to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, we also need to help ecosystems and help people and communities deal with climate change that we're already facing. And often this is framed as, as adapting to these uh, the climate change impacts. So for example, in Virginia, there's an effort to develop a plan for climate resilience, which would basically be helping the state and communities deal with, for example, with sea level rise Sea level rise is an obviously very complicated problem. Uh, there's lots of infrastructure, there's people's homes, there's the Navy bases and the military bases, there's the ports, lots of infrastructure, power plants, everything. You can't just move everything away from the coastline. So some things are going to have to be protected uh, if they are difficult to move. Some things you actually want to retreat from the coastline uh, where it makes more sense. You want to help communities and people do that so they don't have to bear all of the economic costs. You know, one of the issues here is that we all contribute to climate change, but the burden, the impacts are often concentrated on some of the more vulnerable communities, communities that don't necessarily have the resources to adapt. So I think it's up to all of us to work together to come up with solutions, uh, both on the mitigation side and on the adaptation side to deal with a changing climate. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me and answering my questions today. Uh, no problem. Uh, I always love talking about climate change. 
Overall, the effects of climate change are wide-reaching, and they're not approaching, they're already here. As a coastal state, Virginia needs to be aware of the effects of ocean acidification, species migration, and rising sea levels because each of these issues will pose major challenges for public servants and for all of us to solve in the future. And with Virginia likely no longer joining the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, lawmakers will need to find more solutions to the problems at hand. Luckily, with work being done by Scott Doney, we can better understand the issues which will help us better address them in the future. Thanks everyone for tuning into this episode of Intersections in Public Service. If you want to listen to more, you can always visit our website, coopercenter.org or the Cooper Center YouTube channel. If you like this episode, if you felt you learned something, make sure to share it with somebody else who you think will. Thanks again and remember that anybody can be a public servant. <laughs>